Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for market intel, forecasts, and strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Ball. This segment is brought to you by Buxton. Look, you can take investment analysis, marketing, and site selection to a whole new level with mobile and predictive analytics. Check it out at buxtonco.com. Well, today we're going to talk about cities, CBDs. You know, a lot of folks are out there saying that, hey, these large cities, these major markets kind of losing their appeal, that uh, office high rises in these uh, large cities are, are is, is dead. The cities are dead or that there's going to be years and years and years before people want to go back into these buildings. Well, I've found an expert and you've heard him before that has studied these types of things his entire uh, career. Please welcome Hugh Kelly. He's a principal with Hugh Kelly Real Estate Institute. He's a CRE counselor and you've heard him on America's Commercial Real Estate Show before and you've loved him. He's back. Hugh, thanks for joining us, sir. Hey, thanks for inviting me back, Michael. It's, a, it's an honor. And, and Hugh, you heard in the opening, you know, some folks are pretty negative about the, uh, the major cities, uh, the CBD districts, and, and frankly, you know, a lot of the high rises in a lot of these large cities, uh, the, the tenants aren't uh, occupying a lot of these properties yet. But here we are, we're, what, uh, August 2021, hopefully we're getting near the end of this pandemic. You know, what do you say to folks who say these cities and these large office buildings are uh, no longer ever going to be the same again? Well, you know, uh, it's not the first time I've heard that outlook for uh, uh, for cities most recently. Uh, I think uh, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 uh, event. Uh, and right after that, the very same, same things were said that uh, no one would ever go uh, to a high-rise office building again, uh, that corporations would never again consolidate their operations in a single uh, location, location, but we're going to want to scatter. And that uh, the primary cities, the New Yorks, the Washingtons, the Chicago's, the San Francisco's, were just too easy targets of opportunity for terrorism. And so uh, it was going to be the smaller cities around uh, the country uh, uh, that uh, uh, large employers were going to gravitate to. Well, those were wrong on all counts. And part of the reason for that is that uh, uh, the trend uh, uh, to urbanization is 150 years old now in uh, the United States. And urbanization means the metropolitan areas, uh, uh, not just the downtowns, but that movement of, of people, jobs, businesses, and capital to uh, uh, to a rather small subsection of urban America uh, is the dominant trend uh, and one which I think uh, has been disrupted but will reassert itself. Yeah, I remember after 9-11, people were saying, that, hey, who's gonna to wanna to be in a high rise again? And, uh, and you're right, it's like we think based on what we're seeing and feeling right now, and we think that's going to last forever. 
Hugh, are you seeing any uh, indicators to you uh, that suggest that these cities and, and, and large office towers uh, are going to come back? Well, you know, yes, I, I have two categories of, of uh, evidence to, to look at in, in that. One is uh, what I would call soft indicators and others uh, uh, that are hard indicators. And, you know, let's, let's look at the, the hard indicators first. Um, there are some 320 plus or minus metropolitan areas in the United States. The largest 20 of them generate one half of all of the goods and services produced in the country. Half of our GDP comes from 20 metropolitan areas. 70% of our GDP comes from about 500 of the 3,000 counties in the, in the US. It's very, very concentrated. Um, and if you expect GDP to be increasing uh, and has already reached pre-pandemic levels. If you expect that to be increasing, it's going to increase in the place where GDP is most concentrated. So that's the first thing. And then, you know, I took a look at the employment numbers for metros, and it's the June numbers that are the most uh, recent. And there are some real surprises in that, uh, 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 Michael. The fastest growth, not the total number of jobs, but the fastest growth rate has come from the big cities, from the big metros. Over the 12 months ending in June, the New York metro grew 8.9%. So did Boston in terms of its jobs. Philadelphia, 7.8%. There have been strong metros in the Sun Belt, but they don't even approach those numbers. You know, Phoenix is up 6.6%, Atlanta's up 6%, Denver's up 6.6%, and mid-sized metros like Austin, about 7.3%, Nashville, 6.8%, Raleigh, 7.7%, you know, not up at the levels of the New Yorks and the Bostons. Uh, and so, you know, the hypothesis that these cities have reached the end of their economic vitality is just belied by the data. So that's the, the hard indicators. And you can look at that in terms of leasing activity and, and, and so on and so forth. But there are soft indicators in the office market as well. Uh, if you go and read the broker reports that are coming city by city around the country, you know, you see that touring activity, you know, tenants actually out going and looking at space, which is a leading indicator of future leasing. It's up in Denver. Uh, Los Angeles says that touring activity is up to 71% of pre-pandemic levels. Manhattan has exceeded pre-pandemic levels of touring, according to the brokers of journalist Lang LaSalle. Houston tells the same story. So touring activity is up. And then the other thing is, What's happening in terms of subleasing? Right when uh, all of this space was given up, big employers started to put a lot of their, their space out for uh, sub sublease. But now, 
prime tenants are signaling their intention to return by taking back some of that uh, uh, sublet space. You know, Seattle brokers say that, that tenants have started withdrawing their subleasing space in anticipation of reoccupying this fall. Very few spaces have come to market in the Seattle downtown recently. In Washington, D.C., again, a concentrated downtown. Tenants have removed 1.4 million square feet of sublease space since this January. You know, and Boston uh, says that 35% of all the relocation deals in its metro area have been subleases, and that's a new high for them. So, you know, the soft uh, indicators and the the hard indicators are pointing in the direction of resiliency and uh, uh, of, uh, you know, renewed competitiveness for the downtowns. Now, that doesn't mean things are great. This is a tenant's market. It's an occupier's market. It's a market that's been dislocated. It's going to take a while to, to, to work it out. But, you know, one of our great um, temptations is to extrapolate the short term into the long term and say that's the trend. And then once you've done that, to say that trend is an indication is of where we're going to end up and flatten out. That's shoddy thinking. You need to, to think in a more evolutionary and a more uh, dynamic term. Right. And one of the things we need to, to get these uh, central business districts happening again is to get people back uh, in their office space, right? So the restaurants, the retail, that everything uh, starts working and gets more vibrant. You live in the New York area. Uh, you've been in the city a lot recently. What are you seeing? You know, uh, it's, 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 real, it's really interesting. Uh, I was in a few months ago to sit down uh, with, uh, with my own banker. Uh, it's weird for me to think that I have a banker, but I have a banker. Uh, and he, had, you know, he knows that basically I'm a real estate guy. So he's saying, you know, what is it gonna, how will I know that things are getting better? He works for Chase. You know, you know Chase uh, has been very visible through Jamie Dimon and saying, you know, we're committed to bringing our employees back and so on. But he says, how am I gonna know? I said, look on the sidewalk. Look at the number of people walking on the sidewalk, but most importantly, look at the street carts. When you see people lined up again at the falafel stand and the, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the, the salad uh, food truck and, and you know, uh, the Sabrek carts, you know, you'll know that people are again in their office buildings and they're coming out and doing, and, and we're starting to see that we really are. Um, I was in uh, Manhattan just uh, a couple of times in the, in the last couple of weeks because I need to, um, to get some new suits. We have some family weddings coming up, uh, weddings that were postponed because of the pandemic. And so now I've got to you know, refresh my wardrobe a little bit. You know, I've been wearing shorts and shirts like this for, uh, you know, for the, for the last year and a half. Uh, and so I need to get more presentable attire. So I went in to shop for 
for a couple of uh, uh, of suits, and I'm walking through, and sure enough, uh, as I get off the subway at uh, 42nd Street uh, and uh, 6th Avenue at Bryant Park, there's a line to cross the street. You know, the crowds are, are to some degree back. Now, some of them are tourists, but more and more are people who are going to, to, to work. Um, and uh, I'll tell you, the two things complement each other. Because as, the, um, as visitors come back to New York City and enliven the street life, that means that the uh, retail and the restaurant is uh, seen as more vibrant and, and viable. The theater is reopening. Uh, we, my wife and I went to a show uh, uh, just uh, uh, on August 7th, uh, our, our 45th wedding anniversary. The theater was packed. Theater was packed. Uh, and uh, that means that the things that attract office workers to come into the office and then stay and work and take advantage of the nightlife that's around is becoming more uh, available to them. So I'm expecting that's going to happen. Now, we're still in a public health emergency. Yeah, yeah, we are. Thank God that New York, that which was the first epicenter, is in pretty good shape at this, at, uh, at this point, as most of the large cities are, actually. Um, but this ain't over yet uh, in terms of, of COVID. You know, uh, last fall, I published an article uh, that said, had enough disruption yet? And then the subtitle was Reflections on the First Summer of COVID. And people turned to me when this came out and said, you're expecting a second summer of COVID with the vaccines coming? And I said, yeah, this is the, a novel coronavirus. We're still learning about it. We're not going to solve this problem with a snap of, snap of our fingers. And here we are. And um, I think we're going to learn to live with it. Uh, but cities are, are, are beginning to, uh, to, to do that. I think employers will figure this out for themselves and their, their workers. And uh, I'm not among those who believe that cities will die because of it. Well, here, let me ask you, that kind of brings to mind timing. And I know every kind of city and area of the city may be a little different, but let's use uh, Manhattan uh, as an example. What would you expect the timing to see uh, vibrancy like, uh, like 2019? I want to say, I don't, I don't think it's exactly the right question, Michael. Um, and here's why. I think the future is not well considered by looking in the rearview mirror. That the vibrancy of the mid 2020s is going to look a bit different from the vibrancy of uh, the pre-pandemic era. Um, and so expecting us, okay, now how can we rewind and get back to where we were in 2019? 
is not the direction I think of. I think we need to say, how are we going to adapt ourselves to this new situation? And what is it in the quality, the structure, um, and the dynamic of cities that's going to um, have a vitality that looks somewhat the same, but also looks somewhat different from what we've seen in the past. Um, just the way the vitality of 10 years ago was not the vitality that cities had, let us say, when um, I was growing up in the 1950s and the 1960s. Those cities changed structurally, they changed uh, uh, in their operations and their functions from the 1950s and 60s until the early 21st century. We should expect cities to be changing. They should be, they will be smarter. They will be more flexible. Uh, they will uh, be more technological. Uh, and the cities that, uh, that do that, that don't look to, to uh, be exactly what they were in 2015, 16, and 17 are the cities that will, uh, uh, that will have the most dynamism. And those places that I mentioned before seem to be doing that well. The New Yorks, the Bostons, uh, uh, the Washington DCs, the Denvers, the Atlantas, uh, the LAs with the ent entertainment industry evolving, and of course, places like Seattle and, and, uh, and Austin and Nashville. Yeah, and, and you, um, you mentioned it's a bit of a tenant's market in, in most areas and uh, in, in buildings around the country and, and, and a lot of the CBDs. Um, I lead a, a group that sells office buildings and the institutional investors that we deal with are still real bullish on office buildings uh, long term. So what, what do you see as kind of maybe a near term and long term impact for real estate and these central business districts moving forward? Okay, right now, right now uh, what I'm seeing very, very strongly is a flight to quality. And that's typical of um, dislocated markets. Because in dislocated markets, the spread that is typical between the high quality building and the commodity building begins to compress. And that spread in price gives occupiers, tenants, the ability to upgrade their space and to nail down that upgrade for five years, seven years, 10 years at prices that are either discounted directly in terms of the rent or are discounted in terms of above normal TIs, landlord concessions of, very, of various kinds, promises of, of uh, uh, enhanced operations and so, and so on. And so what I think is that, that the spread between of demand, 
the spread of demand between commodity buildings and high quality buildings is going to very strongly tilt in the short term towards class A properties and even properties you might consider trophy properties. Here in New York, for example, one Vanderbilt place, which is right next to Grand Central Terminal, is just finished and it's 90% leased. It's the most expensive space in the city of New York. And yet, because of where it is and the quality of the building, that's where the tenants are going to. But not at the levels that the, that the uh, uh, developers kind of hoped for at the beginning, 150, $180 a square foot, not happening. But still, enough to make this a successful financial development. I hear in Nashville that, uh, first of all, the urban core is substantially outperforming the suburbs. And in the core, it's the trophy buildings that are, that, that are doing the best. Um, it's another story here in Austin you know, with uh, California companies migrating, they're not gonna migrate halfway across the country to get secondary space. That's not, that's not the deal. They're gonna come and find the best places and the best uh, economies that they, they can. Even Houston says that, that flight to quality is, is a major trend, that the metrics for the newest vintage buildings, the ones that are highly amenitized, you know, uh, are far, uh, stronger metrics than uh, than market uh, market averages. And you can see even see that in a place like Charlotte. You know, in in Charlotte, the Class A office vacancy is about 500 basis points lower in the CBD than it is in the in the suburbs, which is where most of Charlotte's space is, right? And comparing Class A to Class B, even in the downtown, there's about a 150 basis point greater tightness in the class A space than in the class B space. So a real shift in tennis taking advantage of a dislocation. Now, once that works its, its way through, the market's going to have a period of stability. I expect we're not going to see very much construction going on uh, in most of the cities in, in the country. And then you're going to see a, uh, um, you know, uh, a a restructuring of the way the central city and its related suburbs uh, do. I think I think this is not a zero sum game. I think there's a complementarity between the suburbs and the and the downtowns. Uh, but uh, I think both can thrive in an economy that's expected to expand albeit moderately, between now and um, uh, uh, 2030. You know, we're going to have a catch-up period that'll be fast, uh, a catch-up period that, that will have some drama to it over the next 18 to 24 months. But then uh, we level off a bit. I expect that. I expect that leveling off is going to mean that absorption will, uh, uh, will be moderate, and new construction will be very hard to uh, to pencil out. Well, it's interesting uh, when you think about the timing 
of a, a rebound, if, if you will. And, and I do some work and live in a market where um, the, the rebound has been amazing and, and the consumers are flush with cash. People are really tired of, of being alone or being in their homes. And, and a lot of the businesses are just doing better you know, than they have in a long time. But I guess when you look at the rebound, if you want to call it that, of the central business districts, uh, it probably really depends on how, how much these big companies feel it's safe to, to have folks back you know, in the subways and back in the office buildings, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's true. And Atlanta is kind of the paradigm of a whole bunch of, uh, of cities in which uh, the downtown is, is per se a relatively small part of the overall market, right? Uh, you know, downtown in Atlanta is one thing. Midtown, there's a lot, uh, 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 you know, I guess a whole different dynamic to uh, to it, and then you've got um, you know the areas in uh, uh, in in around the North Belt Beltway uh, and up uh, uh, Georgia four hundred. Uh, you know, so it's 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 a more diffuse uh, uh, area, um, and I think Dallas performs like that. For example. Uh, I think Phoenix performs that to a great degree, an even greater degree. Uh, you know, so uh, metropolitan Atlanta, I think, has more opportunities in its center than 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 than, than, than a Phoenix does. Uh, you know, so you have to take cities one by one by one and, and look at at their business at their business structure, uh, and uh, you know, I mean the the two new Big developments uh, in Atlanta, I think, are, are the Anthem and the and the Papa John uh, headquarters buildings, and you know, one's in Midtown, the others in, in the Northwest suburban uh, uh, area. Uh, whereas in New York City, you, you see virtually no suburban development of uh, of office buildings, uh, and yet you have the Hudson Yards development. You've got tremendous activity in. Uh, in downtown Brooklyn, for example, uh, you know, which has now a skyline, which which it certainly didn't have when I was growing up. Hugh, what would you leave our audience with uh, related to the major downtown central business districts uh, and their future? You know, I think I uh, I think uh, uh, Peter Linneman at the at the Wharton School at the uh, University of Pennsylvania had an interesting uh, piece recently in which he said, you know, if you think that downtowns are stressed now, you just don't remember what, how they were stressed uh, in the late 1960s and early 70s when there was a huge exodus from these center cities. That's no longer the case. And the reason for that is, and we've talked about this, Michael, uh, is that the top 10 or 12 cities, downtowns, are where people come, not for a job, but for a career. And uh, as long as that's where the opportunities for a career, be that in finance, in law, in professional services, in education, in technology, 
uh, you know, uh, in marketing, advertising, all of these, these, these growth areas, right? As long as you're coming not to get a job, but to build a career, then the things that uh, the agglomeration characteristics of, of CBDs are a real competitive advantage uh, for the 10 or 12 cities that can provide that. And I think the employment statistics that I led off with here are the first bit of hard evidence validating that that will again be the case in the future as it has been prior to this uh, COVID disruption. Well said, Hugh. I, I agree. I think the major cities will come back and I think they may come back stronger than, than people think right now because of kind of what we've all been dealing with. Hugh Kelly, thank you for joining us, sir. Listen, always nice to to be invited and particularly to know michael that you're going to ask questions that that force me to think harder than i've thought before so that that that's really useful to me so i appreciate that great thank you for joining us and thank you for joining us around the country uh, let us know what you think and we appreciate connecting with you we appreciate uh, you sharing the show uh and uh letting uh, folks uh, know uh, what, what you think about the comments on the show today. So until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us next week for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Buxton. Take leasing, site selection, and due diligence to the next level. Make the right decisions with on-demand mobile data. Visit buxtonco.com. By Bull Realty. For proven commercial real estate asset and occupancy solutions, contact me. My email is michael at bullrealty.com. By Commercial Agent Success. Expert-level commercial real estate broker training. Cloud Access 1, up to 21 one-hour videos visit commercialagentsuccess.com. Thank you for reviewing, subscribing, and sharing America's commercial real estate show.